Hello and a very warm welcome to episode two of the Fantasy Five podcast. My name is Dan Barker Gray. Thank you for joining us once again on this uh, trip through. Uh, well, we're going to be taking a little bit of a trip through uh, football nostalgic history today. Um, before I introduce my guest for today, um, I just want to say a big thank you to Six Yards Out, who have uh, kindly teamed up with us for episode two. Uh, they're a website that specialises in uh, items such as mugs, phone cases, beach towels, uh, passport covers, you name it, they do it, um, all themed around retro football kits. And in keeping with the theme of today's episode, uh, they have very kindly uh, given one of you lucky listeners the chance to win a mug themed around the England Italian 90 home kit. Um, all you need to do is head over to our shiny new Twitter page, which is at Fantasy5Podcast. Uh, all the details on how to win are included in our pinned tweet. And uh, if you'd want to give that tweet and uh, retweet and also give us a follow, that would be uh, very helpful. Um, which, you, again, you can find at Fantasy5Podcast. Uh, the five is the number five. And Six Yards Out can be found at Six Yards Out Shop. So with that in mind, I want to introduce our guest uh, for these, today's episode. Um, our guest manager on the sidelines at Five Aside, he's, uh, he's paid the referee. and Luckily enough, his team don't have to wear the bibs this week. Uh, he's the founder of the Football Pink and also the host of the excellent Vincera podcast, which is telling the true story of the Italian 90 World Cup on a day-by-day basis. So I'd like to please welcome to Fantasy Five, uh, Mark Godfrey. Mark, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, Dan. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, before we sort of get into you picking your team, um, I just want to say how much I've been enjoying the uh, Vincera podcast, and I've seen lots of uh, positive uh feedback towards it on Twitter and iTunes as well. Um, before we get into your team, what do you think it is about Italia 90 that still holds a special place in a lot of football fans' hearts, not just if you're English or Irish? Oh, have you got enough tape in the machine for me to answer this question? <laughs> um, it's a tricky one because if, if we first look at the football that was played on the pitch, you know, everybody... the tournament's got more than its fair share of detractors you know that it was a neg there was lots of negative football uh the back pass law was different then of course and you could pass the ball back to the goalkeeper who could pick it up to their heart's content uh so time could be wasted and and you know players uh defenders could go through the back of attackers quite quite easily back then and you know it was almost like it was a different game in a way i mean it was 30 years ago and the game's changed a lot and italian 90s Quite, quite responsible for a lot of that. So, I mean, the football, although not sparkling end-to-end basketball, you score, I score, you attack, I attack kind of football all the time, which to a certain extent, the last World Cup in Russia was, and that was brilliant. Don't get me wrong, Russia World, the Russian World Cup was one of the best if, that I can remember. It was great for a different reason. It was great because it was probably the last World Cup where we didn't know that much about the people who were taking part obviously we knew myself being english obviously i knew who the english players were uh, and you knew a fair degree about them but again remember back then we didn't have sky sports and we didn't know every single other internet we didn't know everything about even the english players necessarily 
But you certainly didn't know about the majority of the players who came from other countries. Yes, you knew about Maradona. You probably knew about some of the Germans and the Dutch players and what have you. But you certainly didn't know anything about the Colombians or the Cameroonians or Costa Ricans. So it was the last World Cup of mystery, I think. Um, a lot of the big name players, the, the Van Bastens and the Hullets, uh, Maradona, didn't really show up in that tournament. Whereas most of the time, you know that Ronaldo and Messi are going to light up any World Cup or any tournament. But in their place came these people that you didn't, you'd never heard of, who were, who were equally, if not more exotic um, in terms of who they were and what they brought to that World Cup. I mean, Scilacci, for example, was relatively well known in Italy, but not outside. And look what he did. The Roger Miller story and the Cameron, uh, Carlos, Carlos Valderrama, you know, we didn't see these kind of players in England uh, back then. We only had the sticker books and what have you. So, so I think that primarily links into it. The television, certainly, we, we didn't get live TV football then. I think there were uh, 12 live games on English football that season um, and the cup final. That was about it. No European football. So to suddenly get all these games beamed in from Italy at tea time, at dinner time, when you could watch it, you didn't have to stay up late at night or anything to watch it. And it was so, exo so exotic and, and stylish. And it was Italy, which was the epicenter of world football at the time. Um, you throw all that into the mix. Um, and, and suddenly, you know, you're hooked into this thing for a month, you know. Um, and then, of course, England did well. And, you know, that's always going to keep people on the edge of the seats or in this country, certainly. Um, yeah. And, and on a personal level, I was 14. Um, and I think... Whatever the world, whatever world cup is closest to you at that particular time in your life, it's your world cup. You know, I can remember going back to 1982. I was only about six or seven, but I can go. I can remember that far back. And Mexico 86, I remember. But Italian 90 was something different. The world was changing. Football was changing. I was, you know, that, it was that pivotal point in my life. So I think when you throw all of that into the mix, for me, that's why it was popular. And then, you know, you. you you can see on Twitter or, or when people talk about it on, online, so many other people were in exactly the same boat. Um, and it was when I don't, there's all sorts of different reasons, but I think very few World Cups, if any, have that hold that many people's affection. Even though it get constantly slagged off for being not great in terms of the football. So there's something magic about it for a lot of people. That's it. And um you say football was changing. It's sort of certainly um, in a, from an English perspective, it's seen as a sort of one of the events that precipitated what English football is today. You know, you have the Italian 90 World Cup and to an extent, uh, Manchester United winning the Cup Winners' Cup in 1991 and the English teams being allowed back in. Mm -hmm. um, it all sort of begins to snowball into behemoth that the, the Premier League really is today, if uh, if you can see where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think um, the, the thing that really kick-started all of the change, of course, was the what happened to Hillsborough uh, and then the subsequent the Taylor report and everything that you know meant we had to improve the facilities for people to come to uh, to football. And, and that's what actually kick-started it all. But I think the thing that sent it into the stratosphere particularly from a broadcasting and a financial perspective, was Italian 90. What we see today now and how we consume football and the industry that it is, it wouldn't be like that had it not been for Italian 90. And that doesn't just apply in England. I think that applies all around the world. 
That's it. Well, um, as I say, you're here to uh, name your uh, fi- dream five-a-side team and keeping with the theme of the Venture Air podcast, um, you're going to pick a team based around Italian IT. So with that in mind, who's between the sticks for your team? Um, well, the the tournament it was it wasn't renowned for for many great goalkeepers, or not many great goalkeepers stood out in that tournament. You know, even Goicochea, who um, ended up being in the team of the tournament, was his country's second or third choice. He only got in the team because uh, Argentina's first choice, Neri Pompidou, broke his leg in the second game. Um, and of course, Goicochea went on to become a bit of a hero with his penalty shootout uh, heroics. But the one I'm going to and, and I'm just to say that I'm going to make this five-a-side team a bit mad and dysfunctional because that's exactly what Italia 90 was. Yeah, by all uh, means. It was mad and dysfunctional. And I'm sure you, certainly I, once upon a time, not now because I'm a bit old, uh, and anybody who's listened to this has played five-a-side down their local sports centre or whatever. And the five-a-side team generally is a bit of an eclectic mix of people uh, who come in and, and play. So that's how, how I'm going to base this team. Uh, and so I, I couldn't really pick anybody else in goal except Rene Aguita for for this. Um, for the reason, well, I, you know, I think it should be pretty self-explanatory. He fancies himself as an outfield player, doesn't he? And he, he comes with tracksuit pants. And, you know, you've got to wear tracksuit pants if you're playing goal in five side. Um, and, yeah, he could pass the ball. OK, you're not allowed out the little semicircle, are you, in five side as a goalie? So <laughs> that might curb his instincts a little bit. Just a little bit, perhaps. Yeah. But you've got to have a, you've got to have a, you know, somebody a bit, you know, out there in goal, and and the Gita certainly was that, and yeah, you you would you would fancy him in goal, wouldn't you, to start off the attack in a five side game? Uh, well, you'd like to think so, yeah. If it's all about building from the back, I suppose uh, a keeper like Gita. Yeah, so you know, you, the people you played five side with, the goalkeepers were never really uh, just going to stay on the line, were they? So. You've always got to have uh, interesting characters in the game of five-a-side. And I think Igita is the obvious choice. And, you know, you, you look at him, you know, uh, with his big hair and his tash and that. I always, I, I didn't remember it at the time, but he was only 23 at Italian 90. So, oh, wow. Exactly, yeah. So you, I, I thought he was a bit of a veteran then. Uh, and then you watch him, when when was it, 95, 96? I can't remember when he would come to Wembley and did the Scorpion Oh, it was... It was 95. It was one of the many warm-up games for Euro 96. Yeah, well then, you know, I would have thought he was knocking on, you know, towards 40 at that point by the looks (laughs) of it. But yeah, he was still only about 28. So, you know, he's not really that much older than than me now. Um, And he's certainly a bit of an interesting character. I know Simon Hart, who's one of my regular guests on Vincera and who has written the brilliant World in Motion book, um, he tells uh, some interesting anecdotes about chasing Rene Aguita around um, uh, Moscow nightclubs when it was the time of the, the World Cup draw a few years ago, trying to get an interview with him for the book. And he's got, uh, yeah, he <laughs> seems like he's still a bit of a party animal even to this day. And what better way to have like your amateur five-a-side team spend its time, you know, socialising, shall we say, uh, then you know, you've got to have somebody like Rene, Rene Aguita in, in the team. Not just for, you know, being good with his feet, but, you know, a bit of a character. That's it. I mean, um, it, it's unfortunate, really, that he's the, the main thing people remember him from Italia 90 is the uh, when he did fancy himself as a bit of an outfield player and uh, it ended up costing Colombia a goal, didn't it? 
It did. And, you know, um, we all thought he was crackers then, but he still maintains, um, and maybe he's right, that he provided the the inspiration or the blueprint for the modern goalkeeper. There's, well, definitely. Yeah. I mean, bef- you know, you, you sort of think of keepers uh, before now and they were very static. You know, P- Peter Schmeichel and Neville Southall were very much commanding of the area and that was that was their domain and none shall pass and he w- they wouldn't come out. But now you think of goalkeepers like uh, David De Gea and uh, Manuel Neuer, the sort of sweeper keepers. Yeah, the, the, you can definitely see there's a, a link between the two. Um, and it's not, it's certainly a South American thing. Aguita wasn't even the first to be like that. Um, people older than me will remember a Peruvian goalkeeper who played in the 1978 World Cup. And at the moment, um, his name escapes me. But uh, yeah, he was the same. He played most of the game in the centre circle rather than in the, in the area. And I think there's one, there's, there's, a, there's a goal, I'm not sure if it's in the 78 World Cup or it's certainly around that time, where he too, like Aguita, gets caught out fiddling around with the ball. Uh, near the halfway line and gets robbed and, and loses, you know, Peru end up losing a goal because of it. Uh, and he was pretty famous. And of course, he had like Chilever was around the same time as Iguita was, who'd come up and take, took free kicks and what have you. Um, Jorge Campos from Mexico. Is it Campos or Campo? Uh, Campos with Campos, the, yeah. Designed his shirts in the dark. <laughs> well, that was good because most of them glowed in the dark. That's true, um, actually, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, there was, you know, he was another one. So I think uh, it's obviously a, a South American. Thing, isn't it so yeah maybe maybe we shouldn't take the mickey out of it too much and just you know actually accept that he was an innovator no that's it i, I can just imagine him now wearing a a, a big pair of uh gray tracksuit bottoms the uh, the main place for five aside where where i live is the, the local college i can just imagine him there on a, a cold thursday night in february in his big thick uh tracksuit bottoms yeah Cig- cigarette just before kickoff no doubt too that's it that's it um, right, so behind or in front of every great goalkeeper, there is a great defender. Mm-hmm. Who have you chosen as your uh, defender for the uh, for this team? Right, well, I've got, again, I'm trying to think of the makeup of the five-side teams I used to play in in the past, and uh, yeah, there was there was obviously a mix of characters you used to get, and often you'd you'd have to fill in, wouldn't you? Somebody cried off at the last minute because their work shifts changed or. Um, you know that this that child was sick, so they had to call off, and you'd have to ring up like your sister and say, "Oh, is your is your boyfriend free?" You know, you didn't really know him, but you knew he he quite liked playing or whatever. So in that respect, I'm going to go and put I'm going to put Stuart Pierce as my defender, because again, thinking about the five side teams, you know, used to playing in the past, uh, thinking you know you you do that, you'd ring your sister or your cousin and say, "Oh, is your boyfriend? What's he doing? Can he can he play?" You know, has he got a pair of trainers? Can he can he come? You know, we're at the sports centre, be there in ten minutes, um, and he'd turn up and he'd be this sullen, you know, sort of bruiser. You know, you wouldn't want to, you know, not very little chat. You know what I mean? And then, you know, he'd play football and he'd play football exactly like his personality. You know, he'd kick anything that moved. Um, had and and that's my that that's why I'd have Pierce there. I'm I, I, you'll as you'll see, I've got plenty of skillful players here. But I'm I'm going with Stuart Pearce, uh, good player. Don't get me wrong, um, but you all you know you always need that sort of hard man to to give the fancy dance a little bit of a kick because uh, five aside was was mostly for fancy dance, wasn't it? Really, who, who fancied themselves with to with a bit of the old stepovers and all that kind of stuff. And you really do need a Stuart Pearce type to to launch them into the into the wall that you used to have in in the five aside places. 
Uh, and yeah, like like I say, like you know, he's a one of those people you'd call at the last minute, and he'd take it way too seriously um, because he'd been called up and he, he you know he didn't understand the situation and um, yeah, so I'm I'm going to go with Stuart Pearce as long as there wasn't any penalties at the end of it all, um, then yeah, it, Pearcey for me at the back because uh, you can also guarantee he wasn't going to go anywhere, he wasn't going to go wandering upfield and leave Igita without any cover so uh, that's why I, i'm going to choose pierce over somebody more sensible like lota mateus for example no i think Stuart pierce is a great choice and it's like you say he, he had that good mix of being able to um put the frighteners up the opposition but was also a really good footballer and i, I think that actually his, his actual ability sort of gets lost a little bit um because of how much of a quote-unquote hard man persona he actually had um, and it's also funny you'd put Stuart Pearce in a five-star team because you you could just see him rocking up in his electrician's van at yeah. the uh, at the last <laughs> at the last minute. Yeah, um, that's exactly the reason why I put him in. But um, I mean, the England defence actually um, is I think it, it's quite underrated in my opinion from from that World Cup. I mean, you have uh, Paul Parker who was quite unassuming, but was you know, and I'm not just being biased here in the fact that he used to play for Manchester United. But, um, you know, he was very solid. He was, you know, he just went went about his business, did the job um, with a minimum amount of fuss. Uh, Terry Butcher and Des Walker were two uh, fantastic defenders. Um, you know, this was Des Walker before he went to play in Italy. Because um, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. He sort of came back a different player after his uh, spell with, it was, was it Sampdoria Des Walker yeah. played for? Yeah, that's right. And... Um, you know, Terry Butcher, you knew what you was getting with him as well. He was, you know, solid and, again, quite scary. You wouldn't want to come up against him, would you? No, that's true. <laughs> yeah, they, you're right. The England team don't, sorry, the England back line don't get enough um, praise, really. And they they sort of um, surprised everybody when we switched to a back five in that World Cup because normally when you switch to a back five, you expect the team to become more defensive. But the opposite happened with England. It freed England up. Um, and you have uh, Paul Parker, who ended up being right wing back. Um, and having spoken to Paul for the, the Venture Art podcast, he he was as surprised as anybody because he was a full, uh, sorry, a centre back uh, at Queen's Park Rangers at the time. And that's where he'd become known. But he, he was versatile enough to play right, right back. But um, he, he was pushed on in that tournament. And actually, he was a better player going forward than people maybe even himself gave gave credit for and you, you saw him often popping up uh, on the right wing yes Stuart Pearce was was very good at going forward obviously had a great left foot but yeah was was an old school defender wasn't he getting the tackles in hard but fair and all that uh, Butcher had experience uh, and again was probably a better footballer than people gave him credit for Mark Wright came into that tournament as seen as a as a cultured defender on the ball um, as well as being a good defender and yeah, Des Walker, the old as the old Nottingham Forest song used to to go at that time. You know, you'll never beat Des Walker, and it it was true. He was super quick, very good at reading the game, very good on the cover, not so great on the ball, mind you. Uh, and I think that's probably what, um, or probably a one of the major things that stopped him being a success in uh, in Italy, as well as probably the culture shock and the language and what have you. And I think I seem to remember reading something that. Was it Sven Goran Eriksson was the manager at Sampdoria at the time? I think he was. Uh, yeah, very possibly, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I just don't think he, he got on with Eriksson or Eriksson just basically ignored him and didn't really uh, interact with him to try and you know, bring him out of himself and to, to 
integrate him into the Sampdoria team so he could be as effective for them as he was for Nottingham Forest in England. And yeah, like you say, I think he was never the same player again. I think he was only there a year, maybe maybe 18 months. But he, he came back and although he did all right, because he went to Sheffield Wednesday, I think, uh, straight after that, he was never the Des Walker of old. Um, and, you know, he should have still probably been in the England setup even as far as Euro 96, but it, it, it didn't pan out for him. But yeah, it certainly uh, the, the switch to a 5-3-2 at that World Cup probably yeah, transformed England and, and transformed a lot the way that we started looking at defenders in England going into the 90s. Because, you know, you think a lot, Tony Adams became a ball-playing centre-back in the 90s. Um, we had players like Gareth Southgate becoming England regulars. And then it led on to people like uh, Rio Ferdinand, who could play on the ball. Well, they all could, but, you know, the ones who were renowned for it. Without 1990, changing that perception and changing the mentality of Eng- English football, um, yeah, we would never have had some of the you know, the, the developments in the way we play football that uh, that came after. No, that's it. It's like you say, it was a, a revolutionary time uh, for a number of reasons. Um, going into the midfield then, um, who have you got as your uh, sort of anchor man or anchor men if you've gone for two in midfield? Mm-hmm. Well, I've gone for two in midfield. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call either of them an anchor man, but I suppose if, you've, if you're going to choose one, it's going to it's got to be Paul Gascoigne. You've got to have him in the team. Uh, again, just because he's mad, you know. You going along with my theme of uh, of ebullience. Um, there's none more. Uh, energetic than Paul Gascoigne uh, and even if he was meant to be playing a game of five aside an hour after you you know he'd come and play and give us all in this game because he was just that way um, and you know he was he he was such an excellent player Gascoigne um, he'd be ideal for five aside because he just he just bustle you and barge you off the ball uh, even whether he's got it or not He'd get you out of the way. You'd get the elbows up as you do in five aside. He'd slam you into the wall as you know people do in five aside. But he would do the, the the cheeky little flicks. He'd pass the ball through the eye of the needle, and he'd stick the ball anywhere you wanted it. And you know, you, again, think about when you play five aside yourself. There's always a character, isn't there, who, who doesn't shut up when he's on the pitch, doesn't shut up when he's in the changing room, doesn't shut up when he's in the bar afterwards for a pint. Gascoigne would be that lad wouldn't he you, 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 and you can always guarantee you'd call him up and he'd come and play so yeah you've got to have him in yeah most definitely and um, I think the, the thing with Paul Gascoigne is at Italia 90 at least he was still very much an unknown quantity I mean you, you talked in the intro about how um, the World Cup still had that air of mystery about it about players from abroad who we didn't really know too much about I think it was similar for the other countries in the tournament. You know, Paul Gascoigne was this burst of energy that just seemed to explode all at once um, in, in the in the lead-up and then obviously came to the fore in the tournament. And I don't think we really saw that again until mm-hmm. perhaps Wayne Rooney at Euro 2004. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, because, yes, Gascoigne had never been to a major tournament before that. Um, he'd only been at Tottenham a couple of years. And, you know, Tottenham weren't... A top, what would he probably sort of sixth, seventh place sort of team around about then. Um, so they were they weren't one of the big three or four at that time. Um, yes, we didn't have TV. He was he was more of a newspaper 
player, if you like. He was always, people were talking about him in the newspaper. But those days, unless you'd seen them in the flesh, you didn't really know what they were about. Um, and he wasn't like Rooney or Michael Owen, who came after. He, or in many places, many players now, like, you know, Jaden Sancho and people like that, they've all got, what, 20 England caps before they're 20 years old now. Um, Gascoigne was allowed to mature at Newcastle. You know, he came, I think he turned pro in 84 didn't really start becoming a first-team regular till about 86. And then it was another two years before he got the move to Tottenham. Nowadays, he'd come in and play half a dozen games, decent games at Newcastle. And, you know, they'd be trying to get him sold or somebody would be trying to buy him to go off to Man U or to Man City or, <clears throat> excuse me, or whoever. So he was allowed to mature as a footballer, and maybe not as a, as a fella, you know, because he's got lots of other things going on. But as a footballer, uh, he got steadily better. Uh, scouting in those days, of course, for international teams to try and come and find out who the again they probably what they knew was what they saw on the TV in major tournaments. They probably knew Lineker, they knew Brian Robson, they probably knew John Barnes. But you know, beyond the obvious sort of four or five players, Gascoigne would have been a bit of a mystery outside of this country and even inside this country. You've got to remember that um, his place on the plane to Italy wasn't guaranteed till about the March before Italia 90 when he absolutely stole the show in a friendly against Czechoslovakia. And even Bobby Robson, the, probably his champion, the one who really wanted him there, even he didn't trust him really to come into the England team and, and you know, fit into a certain system and behave himself uh, and everything else as much as Paul Gascoigne ever could. But uh, yeah, he took that one game and he made himself like, you know, Absolutely essentially, he, he couldn't not be picked after that after that particular um, after that particular performance. But there was always that lingering doubt whether he was ever gonna ever gonna ever gonna play when you had the safe bets of Robson McMahon in the team. But uh, yeah, Bobby Robson, you know, he couldn't he couldn't not pick him. And yeah, when he when he got there, he just kept building. He got better and better as the tournament on went on until the semi final. Um, and then he came up against Mateus, who up to that point had been the best player in the tournament. And for much of that game, Mateus didn't get a kick because Gascoigne was that good. No, that's it. And um, whilst we're trying to sort of stick to the positives uh, during this um, sort of this discussion about Paul Gascoigne, a side of his game that we start that sort of started to creep in, I think, at its first exhibition in the uh, the semi final which was the foul on, it was Thomas Berthold, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, in the fact that he would hype himself up for massive games to the extent where he would go and make sort of reckless challenges. Like like uh, the one against Berthold, you could perhaps say is a little bit unlucky, but you sort of look the, the year after with the one on uh, Gary Charles in the FA Cup final. Mm. And then sort of further down his career, it, when he, uh, I believe he was playing for Everton and he, he did himself a mischief. Uh, was it against Villa that game? Uh, I can't remember, but I mean, you mentioned the Gary Charles um, tackle that, of course, was the thing that did his knee ligaments in. Yeah, in the 91 FA Cup final. You, you, you know, don't forget what was it in the first couple of minutes, even before the Gary Charles one, which is only about the tenth minute of the game, something like that. Um, he'd gone to clear a ball uh, over by, by one of the touchlines, and he followed through, and he he studied Gary Parker. That's straight it, in the know. chest. You know, he could have been red carded in the first two or three minutes and probably he would have been today. But yeah, yeah he couldn't. There was a period where that period, probably the that, that 
season after Italia 90 when actually he was brilliant. I saw him play a number of times that season in the flesh. And I don't, I've not seen a better English player ever I think he, he than he was that season. I think he basically single-handedly dragged Tottenham to the uh, the cup final that year, didn't he? Oh, he did, yeah. It wasn't just the semi-final against Arsenal at Wembley either. I think there was a game, some somebody like Notts County, and maybe they played Luton somewhere on the cup run, where, again, Gaza basically dragged Tottenham through it. But, yeah, his personality is, is such, and you only have to watch the, the documentary film about him. It was out a few years ago. Uh, I don't know how many autobiographies are about him, but um, I've read one of them. Uh, and yeah, you get to understand a little bit about what um, shaped Paul Gascoigne when he was younger. Uh, yes, there's lots of other twists and turns in people's lives that take him down one path or another one. But um, he was always a, a very, very complex character and personality that shaped him from when he was, you know, really a child. You know, sort of, um, events in his life have taken him, uh, have shaped him to become what he is. And then, you know, the influence of the scrutiny, the media scrutiny and everything else that comes with it. And then, you know, all the other stuff, you know, it's not really fair to comment, I don't suppose. But, um, yeah, he's not a straightforward person, Paul, which is a shame, you know, but that's probably what made him what he was in a good way. But it's also led him down many dark alleyways, too. That's uh, that's, uh, that's very true. Um, so who has the unenviable task of trying to keep him calm alongside him in the midfield in your team? Oh, well, the obvious choice is Diego Maradona then, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that'd be a, a nice, quiet post-match pint, wouldn't it? Well, exactly. Again, you can see where I'm going here, can't you? So you've got René Aguita in goal. Stuart Pearce would probably like a, a pint in a fight. Um, and Gascoigne and Maradona in midfield. Yeah, so it's not only going to be a cracking five-a-side team, it's going to be a great little social, uh, social <laughs> club definitely. as well. Um, but yeah, but, but I mean... I kind of contradict myself here a little bit because Maradona didn't... I don't think Maradona had a great World Cup in 1990. We know what he did in 1986, dragging Argentina to the final uh, and then on to win it. Best player Fairly or otherwise. Yeah, well, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, but by 1990, um, his lifestyle and his habits had certainly caught up with him uh, and, and the people he had around him. Uh, and injuries too. I'll be fair to him. He, he you know, he, he played many years, basically, you know, playing through the pain and and um, injections of one thing or another to to keep him going. And that's just the legal substances we know of. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he he was still obviously a brilliant player. Five again, five aside, you play him in a five aside pitch, Paul Gascoigne. Wow, can you imagine? So you couldn't not have him, not because he, he could do things that maybe only one or two other players in history could do. Uh, and, yeah, he'd also be a dirty little bugger as well when he wanted to be. So if he needs to get a few jabs in and a few kicks into people in a five-a-side court, then, you know, him and Stuart Pearce and Gaza would be pretty tidy in, in that respect. Most definitely. Um, it, it's interesting that you, you, you touch on the fact that he uh, he didn't perhaps have the greatest tournament in 1990 um, and the fact that you know, his, his lifestyle was perhaps starting to catch up with him. Um, it, would you say it's this, it's the, sort of the start of what sort of eventually led to the uh, the fiasco at the 1994 World Cup with uh, with Maradona? Um, do you know what? If 
from what I've read, and obviously there was the movie out a year or so ago, I think his life was already out of control way before 1990, let alone 1994. Um, you know, he'd he'd got married. Well, he'd had a legitimate kid, hadn't he? In yeah. What was it? Eighties, sometime when he was at Naples, anyway. Uh, and then he got married to the girl he'd been with basically since he was a teenager. Uh, and you know, there are stories um, about the, the wedding in Buenos Aires that sound, makes it sound like the, the the last days of Rome kind of thing, you know, debauched and who knows, God knows what else was going on. And he couldn't keep himself out of the clutches of, of bad people, um, even before Italia 90. And it was, it was only Italia 90 that really dragged him out of this lifestyle because he felt so strongly about playing for Argentina and, and he loved Argentina, the country that much that he had, that he got himself fit into some sort of playing uh, in some sort of form because he remember he came back into the Napoli team that season when he was essentially, he, he handed in a transfer request essentially uh, and it was agreed. And then they went back on it and he, he was upset with them and didn't want to go back. Um, and, you know, again, got into bad habits turned turned fat um but then he got himself fit primarily for the 1990 world cup to win it for argentina but also to stick two fingers up to the particularly the northern italians who who hated him and hated southern italians too who really sort of displayed some sort of racism towards the people of of naples and and the south um and that was his motivation but once that was over and, and, you know, there's the famous scenes at the, in, at the end of the final where, of course, he breaks down in tears because they lose, deservedly, they deservedly lose. Uh, and that really, for me, brings the curtain down on Diego Maradona as, I wouldn't say a role model, but as the best player in the world. Because, what was it, six months, eight months later, that's when, you know, he got nabbed in a police sting, um, got done for cocaine use and got banned basically fled Italy and wasn't wasn't seen for another couple of years was he and, and then came back again in time for the 94 World Cup but by that time his addiction and everything else had took hold and obviously it nearly took his life didn't it yeah most definitely it, it very much does seem sort of like a bit of an end of an era in terms of Maradona's sort of um, position in the sort of pantheon of best uh, best players in the world at the time mm-hmm. yeah um, but for that, for this one, this 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 little five-a-side team I put together, I'm going to assume that he's at his best, as as well-behaved as he possibly could be. And again, I've paired him up with Gascoigne and René Aguita, so you know, who <laughs> maybe that wasn't so wise, but yeah, uh, might just have to yeah, uh, keep an eye on him. Might just have to keep an eye on him when he gets to the dog and duck for your Paris match pint. <laughs> well, you keep an eye on him for the pre-match pint as well, I think. But yeah, most definitely, you you, you might want to check what's in his. Uh... Old Lucas Aid Bowl. <laughs> yeah. So with uh, with that in mind, who is your striker who's going to uh, hopefully rattle a few goals in for your team? Uh, well, you know, I could have picked Kanija here, but you know, I think I've got too many uh, people who like um, social life in this team, and I could have picked Scalacci, um on the premise that you know he, he had he he was the face of Italian ninety really wasn't he and he. he was brilliant at that tournament, but was never seen again almost. But instead of those two, I've gone for, and again, harking back to my five-a-side days, or certainly, let's say, playing Sunday league pub football, um, you always used to get this one player who was 
so much older than everybody else, but he was always fitter than everybody else and more enthusiastic than everybody else and usually better than most people too. But he just played on forever. I, I had a player. I always used to play with a player like that. And he played into his, I think into his fifties. So for that reason, I'm going to pick Roger Miller. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't really uh, theme anything around Italian 90 and not include Roger Miller. Can you? No. And you know, his, of course, his is, is such a fantastic story. And it didn't end there, of course. He, he played on until he was 42 and played in the um, 94 World Cup. He, he played in 82 uh, and he'd done all right. And Cameroon had drawn three games, all three group games back then, uh, and were only only didn't get out of their first group stage in the 82 World Cup on goal difference. I think Italy, uh, they, they held Italy, who, of course, went on to win it, uh, held them to a draw. Um, and then... And he'd had a great, a lot of people don't realise that he'd actually had a very decent club career uh, in France with some really decent teams. You know, played for Monaco, played for St. Etienne. And then he'd gone and come to the end of his career and gone into semi-retirement uh, on the island of Reunion, which is in the Indian Ocean, and played in their, played in their league there. And, you know, he's banging the goals in there. But then who knows what the standard of the Reunion Premier League was in, <laughs> in 1990. You know, I can't imagine it was that great. Uh, so even a 38-year-old Roger Miller was was going to look like the best player in the league. And then, you know, Cameroonians come to the World Cup. And uh, initially, he wasn't chosen for the squad, not surprisingly, I suppose. Uh, but then the, the president, or let's say, call him what he is, the dictator of Cameroon, a guy called Paul Beer, who I, I believe still is the leader in Cameroon, I think. Um, he essentially convinced the coach that Roger Miller had to be included in the side. But, and, you know, you know, how are you going to turn down the dictator of the country and say, no, even, even it doesn't matter how good he is, how can you say no? He could have been lobbying for his grandma and he would have had to have, uh, had to have picked her uh, when, when the president starts um, throwing his weight around. But, yeah, there he was. He was in the squad. Um, and one, one thing I didn't know before researching the for, for the podcast was that his inclusion didn't go down well at all with the other players. So for them to then go on and do what they did and for him to shine so much really goes against um, what the mood was when he was chosen and then taken to the, taken to Italian 90. That's uh, no, that's it. And um, you, you sort of look back now and you think to yourself, it well, you know, if, if he hadn't been chosen, how far do you think the, the Cameroon team could have gone? But it was, it was very interesting. I mean, when I was doing some research for uh, another project of mine, I'd sort of Mandela affected myself into thinking that um, Italia 90 was uh, Cameroon's first appearance at a World Cup. Mm. Um, would you agree that there's perhaps a, a school of thought in that because of the fact that, you know, they came out against Argentina in the first game and sort of very much um, set their stall out to... Mm. Uh, well, for want of a better word, just destroy any everything that was in their path. Yeah, um, as I said, the '82 World Cup, they came and they did. They didn't disgrace themselves. They they put up a really good fight, but they they went home. You know, they they weren't even the best African nation at that tournament. Uh, Algeria beat West Germany in '82, yes. so they you know the, the team that got to the final. So they weren't even the, the African story of '82 World Cup. Didn't get there in '86. But yeah, I mean the 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 shock waves that that opening win I can still remember I can still vividly remember that game being completely astonished 
at not only the fact that they won because you could, they could have won flukily but the way they put it up to Argentina the world champions who admittedly weren't as good as um we were expecting them to be but they weren't just a team of you know bruisers or or you know athletes as you know it's got the negative connotations of how we look at players and teams from Africa but they were actually a really good team you know people like Oman Biek Cyril Makinaki were, were really good footballers and okay we've got you know the Benjamin Benjamin Massing incident where he clobbered Claudio Canigia which is still my favorite possibly my favorite football moment let alone my favorite World Cup moment um, yes we always remember that and, and they could certainly get their foot in but um, you watch Roger Miller in any of the games where he came on and he didn't start a single game at Italia 90 um, you watch all the games he comes on is fluid not just his but the other players but specifically Miller his fluidity of movement and his his cleverness of his passing and his timing of his passing, his runs and you know he's just got this feline quality, the way he moved, you know, and and the goals he scored, the finishing was just, you know, you you'd expect that of the likes of Van Basten uh, and um, I don't know Klinsman and Lineker and so on. All these great strikers were in that tournament, but you probably didn't see a better striker. In terms of, of how he how he looked, okay, Scalacci scored six goals, but nobody looked better than Roger Miller when he was in in full flight, um, and he'd just be such a nice player to have with Maradona and Gascoigne in this five a side team. Like as the opposition, you just wouldn't know where to look and where to find them. They'd be they'd be away and gone before you even know what you were doing. That's it, and uh, I think also they could he um, could be lethal in the five side scenario if there was uh, even if the, there was no head height rule, he could, he'd um... He'd be, uh, you could play some good balls along the ground to him, and he'd uh, he'd latch onto him perfectly, and uh, probably score you a good few goals too. Oh yeah, this the ball would never be off the ground with this lot, so no 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 danger of that. No, that's that's good. That's uh, that's uh, that's always what you like to see. So just to recap the uh, the team, then in goal you went for uh, Rene Higuita, the Colombian, and then in defence we have Stuart Pearce, who's just uh, just behind a. Perfectly stable midfield of uh, Paul Gascoigne <laughs> and Diego Maradona, and then uh, Roger Miller up front. I mean, uh, I'm not being funny if uh, you were, you rocked up to the uh, leisure centre on a, a Thursday night after work and you uh, you saw them lining up against you. You might not want to get out of the car, really, would you? You'd probably think well, you'd be lucky to get the nil. Exactly. If you play against them, the three things are almost certainly you're going to get hacked to death. You're going to get embarrassed, and then you probably end up going to get drunk afterwards in a, in a with a post-match pint. And I see that as the perfect five-a-side team. Yeah, yeah, that's no, that's that's great. You know, you 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 always have to have a good balance of uh, sort of uh, being able to handle yourself as well as play the game, really. Absolutely. Well. Thank you very much once again, Mark, for uh, taking the time to join us. Um, just for anyone who's unaware, where can they find uh, the Ventura podcast? Uh, the podcast is available basically everywhere that you get a podcast. So Apple, Spotify, uh, Google, etc., etc. You just have to type in uh, Ventura, which uh, is V-I-N-C-E-R-A or Italian 90. Any, any search term like that will bring you to, to Ventura. And on Twitter, we are at Ventura 90. That's great. And uh, just another reminder that you can follow the Fantasy Five podcast on our new Twitter page, which is at Fantasy Five Podcast. Remember, the uh, five is the number five. Um, 
we are still currently on Spotify at the moment. We are working to get the podcast on as many platforms as possible. Um, hopefully, within the end by the end of next week, we will be on uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Play Podcasts. So you'll be able to uh, download us and uh, listen to us. And when when that is available, please do uh, make sure you subscribe. So uh, all that remains for me to say is once again, thank you to Mark for joining us. Thank you very much, Dan. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed that. And uh, from myself, Dan Barker-Gray, and the Fantasy Five podcast, it's uh, thank you very much. And until next time, take care.